1 Timothy chapter 5, and we're uh, discussing the matter of elders, their leadership, uh, their support, their selection. And so let's, uh, let's read chapter 5, verse 17. The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Let's go to the Lord. Father, thank you for your word. And I pray, dear God, that you would guide us, that you would speak through us. And, oh God, that your word would have force. Oh God, let us do nothing to hinder that. Please help these men, help those who are listening, that they might be effective, pleasing servants of Christ Most High. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, we were talking about uh, elders and about their leadership, and we, in our last, our last lesson, we came to the conclusion that there were certain things that the elder had to be and do in order for any of this to work, in order for there to be a proper leadership. And the first one we looked at was he has to meet the non-negotiable character qualifications that are laid out in Scripture um, in, in Titus 1 and in 1 Timothy 3. I, I cannot emphasize this enough. It's amazing to me that in seminary training, those things are rarely touched on. It's amazing to me that prior to ordination, a man is not required to spend um, a great amount of time studying each one of those qualifications. Isn't it amazing? that we will busy ourselves with so many trivial things in preparation for the ministry, but we will not think about the main things, and that's character, character. Now, a second thing is he must have a mature knowledge of the scripture and have the fear of God so that he leads the church only according to the scriptures. I, I just believe that one of the greatest problems uh, in the ministry today and also in, uh, in Christianity at large is a lack of the fear of God. And, and that doesn't mean some, you know, some psychotic trembling in the presence of an unstable deity. What I'm talking about is reverence and respect, knowing something of who he is what he requires of us, having a healthy view of that great day when we all stand before him and our lives and our ministries are passed through the fire. Now, I want us to go to what I feel like is one of the greatest examples regarding authority and scripture in the entire Bible, and it's in Deuteronomy 17. And although it has to do with a king, it definitely has application for us today as ministers. So in chapter 17, verse 18, now it shall come about when he, that is the king, sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. It shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life and that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes, that his heart 
may not be lifted up above his countrymen, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the left or the to the right or the left, so that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. Now he's talking about a king, <laughs> and a king that wielded a tremendous amount of authority. Now, I don't see any place in the New Testament or the Old Testament where a pastor is referred to as a king. I don't see a throne or a scepter. And so we're talking about someone here who has, this king has a great deal of authority, but with the authority that he's been given to sit on a throne, he can only wield that authority according to the word of God and only as he himself submits to the word. So how much more you and I, who are not kings, we're servants. We're servants. Look at it this way. You can call yourself a servant of God and you can, uh, you can twist that up. These TV preachers do that, you know? I'm a servant of the Most High God, therefore I deserve a $30 million plane or something. Well, to be a servant of God, that's a biblical expression, and we need to be a servant of God. But let's add something to that that may help us keep what that means in perspective. You're a servant of the servants of God. You're a servant of God by being a servant to the servants of God. Now, that kind of puts it in perspective, doesn't it? Kind of takes you down from whatever throne you think you may have built. We are foot washers. We are servants of the servants of God. We rescue his people, we protect his people, we guard his people, we feed his people. We're their servants, their servants. Now, it says in verse 18, now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll. That's a lot of writing, especially since he didn't have a computer not really even paper, not even a ballpoint pen. So it was, what was it written on? Tablets, what was it written on? Papyrus, what was it written on? It wasn't an easy task. Oh, dear brothers, how much should we, should we be reading the Word of God? How much should we be reading the Word of God? Repeating it, repeating it, repeating it over and over again. Now, notice this. He shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll all by himself because he knows everything. Is that what it says? No. He shall do so in the presence of the Levitical priests. Why? Make sure he gets everything right. I believe that a minister's primary obligation is to read the word of God and to compare scripture with scripture to interpret the word of God. But I also strongly believe that we should compare our interpretation to 2000 years of Christian history. And if no one 
understands the text that way, the way we do, and everyone contradicts us, then who's probably wrong? If you think everybody else, congratulations, you've just become the leader of a sect. <laughs> so uh, there, again, you can fall off on either side of this thing, can't you? I, I know men who, I mean, I was talking to a New Testament scholar a couple of months ago and he said you would be amazed at how many New Testament scholars when they have to write a book on a certain book of the Bible they get the five top commentaries on that book and just kind of bring them all together. Now there's a place for looking at all those commentaries but we should be going to the text and so on one side, you have people just doing commentary work and they never study the Bible. There's no power in that. There's no preaching in that. Then you have other people who go to the text and don't feel like they need to compare themselves to anyone. That's foolishness. That's very dangerous. Let's do both and put them in a temporal priority. First of all, go to the scriptures. Cry over it. Read it a thousand times. Compare verse to verse, scripture to scripture, books to books. Know the whole Bible. But when you've done all your wrestling and you've come to all your conclusions, do so in the context of the church. Do so in the context of people like yourself who've loved the scriptures. He did it in the presence of the Levitical priests. Another thing you need to realize, you study in the midst of your own congregation. There's nothing wrong with telling your congregation or even certain individuals, I'm studying certain texts and I'm having some difficulty with it, or maybe you're not, but you can still go. Do you have any insight into this? Have you studied this text? And no, I'm not asking you to ask them, you know, what do you feel? <laughs> but there should be people in your, in your church that study the scriptures that are even outside of what's called the elder body. So he's, he's doing this in the presence, we could say, of leaders, of the spiritual leaders, but also, in a sense, he's doing it in the context of the community of faith. Now, it goes on and it says, it shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life. Do you see redundancy there? Why doesn't it just say, it shall be with him all the days of his life? Why this parallelism? Why this repetition for emphasis? This man, his authority and his rule depends upon him saturating his life with the word of God. Now, look what happens. And, and this is quite overlooked. People think, you know, I study the Bible to learn how to live. I study the Bible to learn about the gospel. You also study the Bible to learn to fear the Lord. What is the beginning of all knowledge? The fear of the Lord. That's the beginning of all knowledge. And what is one of the gifts that come to you from reading and reading and reading the scriptures? The more you know about God, the more reverence you'll have in your heart toward him. So it shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life. He's not, he's not a teacher necessarily in Israel. You are a teacher. You should be reading this all the days of your life. 
that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes. How do we learn to fear? The word of God. What is the result of fear? The word of God. Observing. How do we fear him? By observing. How do we love him? If you love me, you will do what? Keep my commandments. You see, there's just, there's just, um, how can I say this? There, there is this permanent link between faith in the word, piety in the word, love in the word, fear in the word. There's nothing in the Christian life that is separated from the word of God. Even what we would refer to as the subjective or experimental is directly related to the word of God. Now, look what else happens by reading the word of God. And oh, is this very important for the pastor, for the elder, that his heart may be not may not be lifted up above his countrymen, literally above his brothers. Now think about that. Have you ever known of leaders going into a room and secretly kind of laughing and making jokes about somebody in the church who seems to be quite ignorant of scripture or can't seem to just get it right? Can't add two plus two, always comes out with three or five. Did you ever have someone come up to you in the church, a new believer or an immature person, and give you advice that you didn't listen to? Because you don't need it? Oh yeah, they could be wrong. I remember one time there was this uh, woman from the high Andes mountains that had come to Peru come to Lima uh, as a kind of a refugee because of all the, the um, civil uh, unrest up in the mountains and the, something of a war going on. And she would always come and tell me something. I mean, she would tell me something. I, I said one day that women were not supposed to be pastors and she pointed out in the, in the uh, Spanish Bible that it says that uh, there was a woman who was a pastora, she was a shepherdess, <laughs> you know. And uh, she would always tell me something. And one day a deacon came up to me and he said, why do you always listen to her? I mean, why do you take the time? And I said, because sometimes Jesus visits and he wears very strange clothing. I can learn something from her, but also am I being tested? Am I being tested? How much do you love the church? Well, let's look at it. You can love the church, you know, this big concept of the church. You can love the church in the sense that uh, you love your ministry in the church. You don't really love the church, you love your ministry in the church. You can love the church, 
And it comes to those people who, you know, they promote the church. They contribute to the church. They add to the church. They're a blessing to the church. I'll tell you how much you love the church. You love the church to the degree that you love the most difficult and weakest saint in that church. That's how much you love the church. Both me and you, it's the same for us. You want to know how much you love the church? That's how you judge it. The one that keeps getting dirty, the one that keeps falling, the one that causes the most problems, the one that doesn't contribute to your vision. That's how much you love the church. I remember one time in Peru, we had these, uh, because we were always renting uh, for years, we uh, would have these home fellowships. And I had this one home fellowship and there's this guy that would come to it. And I mean, he was so obnoxious that my wife and I actually admitted one time, I mean, with tears, we felt so bad that we just hoped he wouldn't show up. I, it, was, it was difficult. I mean, it wasn't that he was malevolent or anything like that. It's just, he was a, a three-year-old in a 35-year-old body and he would just interrupt everything. It was nonsensical. I'll never forget this. And one day he came in and he sat down. He opened his Bible and he listened carefully. And I thought, well, you know what? <laughs> what happened here? And then the next week he came and my wife and I made it a point, our Chato and I, of conversation. What, what happened here? What's going on? Is he sick or is he on medication? What's going on? And about the third week, we found out that God had done a tremendous work in his life. And in his simple understanding, he had come to know Christ and he had wanted to live for Christ. He became one of the greatest delights to our entire church. He, he was a soul winner. He could only tell people basically, I love Jesus, Jesus died for me. You need to believe in Jesus. He became a delight and I can remember how convicted my wife and I were about that and what a delight he became. What a lesson that we learned. Okay, so how much do you love God's church? Well, if you want to love God's church more and you want to walk humbly with your brethren, then look at verse 20 again, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or the left. It's interesting here that those two things are linked together, that possibly one of the greatest apostasies that you can commit is to have your heart lifted up with regard to the rest of your brothers. Wow. Think about that. Remember, you're not just God's servant, you're a servant of God's servants and you serve God by serving them. And so, well, let's let's go back now to the New Testament. And let's find our way back there to. Uh, to first Timothy, chapter three, verse 17, I'll read it again, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. 
So he has the character traits, non-negotiable character qualifications of 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1. He has a mature knowledge of Scripture and leads the church only according to Scripture. Apart from a clear exposition of Scripture, he has no authority. Please understand that. And again, you... Be very, very careful as a minister and possibly supported full time for the study of God's word. You are going to have greater opportunity to know God's word. And it's possible that, you know, God's word better than anyone else in the church. But you must encourage and you must help men to learn men, women and children to study the word of God so that they can see these things for themselves and so that they can hold you accountable. Extremely important, brothers, not just for the health of the church, but for the salvation of your own soul. The salvation of your own soul. Now, thirdly, he directs the congregation to Christ rather than to himself. He leads the congregation to greater maturity and to less and less dependence upon him. The pastorate is a perfect place for a narcissist. You're all shaking your heads in an affirmation. You know it's true. I mean, the president or the prime minister of a country, that's, that's all they are. A pastor can set himself up as the voice of God. The man of God. Be very careful, very, very careful. Especially the younger you are and the more privileged you are. And what I mean by that is there are young men, and I've seen them, who have quickly grown in their knowledge of the scriptures. It's, it's extraordinary, and, and that's a wonderful thing. But oh, it's so important to, to at least understand that no matter how much you know up here, you don't really know it. Um, I, I go. I go through life and, and I see that I look back on my life 40 years ago, 30 years ago and being in the ministry and I, it's, it's terrifying. And all I can say is I survived by the grace of God. Because I did not know what I should have known. Another thing that's very sad is why are young ministers having to reinvent the wheel and learn all over again? I'll never forget, this is kind of a side note. Uh, I would preach on the streets and, and do a lot of evangelism and I would always struggled with, you know, uh, the assurance. How do people really know they have assurance? Because when you're street preaching, you have all kinds of professions of faith and everything else. And sometimes people fall away and you go, how does someone really know they're saved? And I remember spending a great deal of time over a period of years, really trying to work through the doctrine of assurance. And then one day, I think, I think I'm not sure. I think it was the Heidelberg Catechism. 
After years and years of study, I went through and looked at a few of the questions and it answered my questions immediately. And I was like, why on earth were these, I use the word simple, they're very profound. Why all this reading in seminary? And I couldn't, there was no one who could give a sure word. And then you go to a small catechism and it's clearly laid out. I would, I would recommend that you go through uh, some of these ancient and tested catechisms before you go into these deep, you know, these big, expansive volumes of theology. We have, of course, a Baptist catechism. Of course, there's the Westminster, the Shorter Catechism. There's the Heidelberg. All of them provide something of great, great benefit. I would recommend to you the Catechism of Catechisms, at least in size, the Fisher's Catechism. I don't know if any of you've uh, seen that catechism, but for every one question in a normal catechism, this one has about 6,000. <laughs> it's amazing. It's a systematic theology all to itself. Um, so you want to train your people. I'll never forget when my son went off to college. Uh, someone said to my wife, they said, oh, aren't you sad? She said, no. <laughs> and the lady looked at her like, what's wrong with you? She said, no, I'm not sad. This is what I've been working for for 18 years. I will miss my son. But this is what I'm working for. That he can live independently of us. And this is what you're looking for. You ought to long for the day where the new believer who needs you almost every day, it comes to the point one day when you need them every day. That's when you know you're a success. But if everybody has to come to you because you are the fountain of wisdom, you're in trouble. And if you like it, if you like it, you're really in trouble. Okay, so we've come to that now and we're going to in the next lesson, if you men have time, um, we're going to get to the elders uh, recompense. Um, it talks about if we look here, he says, uh, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. So let, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. And I pray, dear God, that you would work in the hearts of those who are listening. That, oh God, oh God, they may grow. That they may grow. And they be, may be useful servants. And Lord, so many bad things are said about this new generation of young people. Oh God, does this not provide fertile soil to raise up the greatest ministers the world has ever known? Please, dear God, please. Shame the wise, O oh God. Get glory for yourself by using babes. In Jesus' name, amen.